This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Assistant Professor of History at the University of Minnesota, where she teaches courses on early America and the Atlantic world, the history of religion, that is an interesting idea in and of itself, uh, Caribbean history, and the African diaspora. Uh, She is joining us on our program to share some thoughts that go along the lines of some of the things talked about in her book entitled Christian Slavery. Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. Interesting title for a book. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Lots of things that I want to ask you about, but I'm going to go back to something I mentioned in introducing you because this does intrigue me. On a college or university campus, talking about history and um, early America, history. What's the response like from students? Do they get engaged? You know, they do get engaged, and especially when you teach history in a way that connects it with the present. So I found uh, I found it really successful to sort of introduce, uh, you know, current events or things that are happening today and then connect them with uh, things that happened in the past, um, you know, we can think about race today and see how uh, the idea of race has evolved over time. Uh, and students also get interested in things that they find to be totally inexplicable. So, you know, I teach a course um, called Magic and Medicine, and we talk about the history of witchcraft and trying to put ourselves in a place where, you know, something like the Salem Witch Trials could make sense. Uh, that, I think, is very engaging for students. Um, but really, yeah, it, I mean, you just have to make history important. And I think it's not a hard task because history is very important today. Uh, and so as long as I'm doing that in my courses, I, I definitely find that students are engaged, they ask questions, and you know, they come out of the courses feeling like they really understand our contemporary society better. Well, it's good to hear that you know, you're doing something which, first of all, creates a process in education that I love when I spend time in college classes. Um, 
because it's one of the things that I like to do outside of here. And that is to actually get people engaged in the educational process. It doesn't have to be something where you're just sitting reading words from a book that was written a million years ago mm -hmm. um, and is introducing ideas and concepts that are basically completely foreign to the young people who are reading them. Um, but to take this and make this something that actually relates to things today, I think, creates understanding in a way. And, you know, it hopefully then can be something that's useful for them yes. in, in their lives today. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Why this book at this point in your life and your work? Right. So why did I write a book uh, called Christian Slavery? I, I never really set out to do that. Um, this actually emerges from my interest in studying the anti-slavery movements and abolition. And when I began research uh, for what eventually became this book, I was trying to answer the question, you know, how did people combat slavery? And how did they create arguments, uh, successful arguments against slavery? And so I started by looking at the first anti-slavery protest that was written in the American colonies. And that was written in 1688 by a group of German and Dutch Quakers who were living in Pennsylvania. And actually, one of the reasons I was interested in this was because I went to school, I grew up going to uh, high school just a few blocks away from where that anti-slavery protest was written in uh, Germantown, uh, in part of Philadelphia. And um, as I did the research into this project, however, and into that document, I realized that the protest itself was rejected, um, and that was even among Quakers in Philadelphia who were some of the first anti-slavery uh, protesters. You know, Quakers are so often associated as being, you know, an abolitionist group, but I was surprised to hear that in the 17th century, most Quakers actually didn't uh, support ending slavery, and in fact, most Quakers uh, in the colonies owned slaves. And so this was very perplexing to me, and I started asking different questions, like why did why did Quakers own slaves? How did they reconcile this with their theological commitments? You know, they were, uh, you know, a very religious and conscientious group of people. And I expanded from there to look at other Protestants and missionaries um, and how they dealt with slavery in the American colonies. And from there, I sort of started asking bigger questions about what role religion played in actually establishing uh, the system of slavery that developed in the English colonies, the uh, Danish colonies, and other sort of uh, Protestant colonies in the Americas. And uh, that's, you know, I just kept going, and eventually I sort of came to this understanding of uh, how important religion had been in, especially Protestant Christianity, had been in sort of creating the legal uh, foundation for slavery in the Americas. What about, because you talk about this in your work, the efforts to really, I guess, convert enslaved people to Christianity. Yes, this is absolutely essential to, um, you know, what I, um, I, what I researched. Uh, what I found is basically there were Quaker missionaries and other Protestant missionaries who, they, didn't, they weren't against slavery, but they felt that enslaved people should, should have the opportunity to convert to Christianity. Uh, and what they found was that slave owners did not want their slaves to become Christians because we have to sort of go back into the 17th century. And at that time, um, to be a Christian, and specifically to be a Protestant, 
meant usually that you were a free person, and so it was very closely associated with uh, privileges and rights, um, and slave owners did not want enslaved people having access to those privileges. And so this is a very different type of society than, you know, what we usually imagine when we think of American slavery, and it's usually we think of the 19th century plantation south. Um, this was a very different story, and uh, religion played sort of the essential role in religious difference was the essential way to justify enslaving someone and keeping someone enslaved. And so it was very important for slave owners to keep that barrier up and to not allow enslaved people to become Christians. What was your impression or takeaway when you saw the movie a couple of years ago, 12 Years a Slave? Uh, yes. You know, well, it's, I mean, it's an incredible movie, and it really sort of visually depicts many of the uh, sort of the realities of slavery, in, again, in the 19th century. Um, and so I think it's a really important movie, and, you know, it's coming out of a, a you know, an, an autobiography, right, Solomon Northrup autobiography, and so it's a very well-done movie. But one of the problems that we have in our perception of, of American slavery is that it is so influenced by that period of time, right, by the 1830s, 40s, 50s, right before the Civil War, because that is when uh, there are so many um, slave narratives written, these autobiographies of ex-slaves, and, you know, the way that Christianity is portrayed in that movie, you know, it, you, for those who have seen it, they may remember sort of some of the slave owners using using Christianity as a, well, there it's as a justification for slavery, but it's also, um, you know, slavery or Christianity is sort of forced on enslaved people in some ways. That's not the way that uh, Christianity functioned in the early, uh, early colonial period. So we have to sort of recognize that slavery was not a static institution, and nor was Christianity. Uh, these, are, these are living institutions that changed over time. The justifications for slavery changed over time. And it's really important to see that the 17th century slave system um, was different from the 19th century one, but it also fed into it. And so they're connected, but it's, it's uh, critical that we see the differences between them. Things like reading, writing, literacy, um, those being an outgrowth, I guess, of, you know, how the lives of enslaved people uh, changed. Can you explain that? Yes. So, again, um, conversion to Christianity was very closely associated with learning how to read and write. And this was a very, very powerful tool. You know, today we tend to take it for granted, right? Like everyone learns how to read and write. In the colonial period, uh, this was not the case. And uh, one of the reasons that slave owners did not want their slaves to become Christian was because they associated it with literacy. And missionaries did teach enslaved people how to read and write in many cases. This was also one of the primary reasons that enslaved people sought out missionaries, wanted to become part of Christian congregations, uh, because it gave them access to education. And um, so this was sort of a very critical part of this story. Um, and, you know, the fact is that it, it was a really powerful skill, and I've found documents in, in the records that I've looked at that are, you know, one letter was uh, sort of written by a uh, a former slave, a free African woman living in the Caribbean, in the Danish West Indies, 
writing to the Queen of Denmark saying, you you need to intercede on our behalf. We're getting beaten for trying to be Christian, and this isn't right. So you can see how literacy and writing could be this really important and powerful tool for enslaved and freed uh, African people. Over time, however, slave owners uh, recognized that this was happening, and missionaries who were very desperate to get the approval of slave owners to allow them to you know, evangelize to the enslaved population, basically started to change what it meant to really convert to Christianity. And over time, they de-emphasized literacy, um, said, oh, you, nobody needs to learn how to read and write. We can just, we'll just sort of read them the scripture, and we'll read them, we'll read them specific parts of the scripture that are about you know, obedience. And so they tried to change what it meant to convert to Christianity to basically exclude literacy, learning how to read and write, from that process. And so what we see here is actually a change in how people were defining conversion and true Christianity. This is Bob Salter. We'll continue in our discussion with Catherine Gerbner. A lot more to get to as we move along smartly on our program this morning after our top of the hour update at 7 o'clock. As usual, these summer Sunday mornings, it's our favorite. Anne Liguori will be along. She'll be talking golf here on The Fan. We're talking on our program with Catherine Gerbner. Uh, She has joined us by phone. Her book is entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. I'm Bob Salter. Um, In doing the book, um, I often ask authors this question I'm going to pose to you. What are you hoping is the takeaway for people who read it? Well, you know, I hope there are a few takeaways. So one is that I hope that people come away, um, and this is some, I haven't quite talked about this part of the book yet, but one of the things I do in the book is I'm talking about the history of whiteness. You know, I, slave owners, Europeans, I used to call themselves Christians. And over time, they start to use this word white, and they start to enter it into their law books. Um, And it's really, they do so just as there's a large enough population of free black Christians that they could have been claiming um, basically voting rights or the ability to hold office. So I think it's really important, especially in this moment where there's a lot of discussion about whiteness um, and about, you know, white supremacy, that we think about the actual term white and where, what its origins are. And I think that helps to inform our conversation today because it's more than just, you know, a part of our biology. It's more than just a social construct. It's actually, uh, it, em- it emerged and was created for specific historical and political reasons. So that's one takeaway. But also more broadly, I think um, the, I want people to see sort of how many different types of roles religion could play. Um, you know, religion could be used as sort of a tool for oppression, as we see it is in the law books um, that sort of specifically define enslavement as being justifiable for non-Christians. Um, it could also be used as a, as a tool for abolitionists to try to defeat slavery. Um, and it was also a really important role for those enslaved and free black people who did convert to Christianity. They were creating new interpretations of Scripture, and, and I think that we have to hold all of these sort of uh, 
ways in which Christianity was playing a role in society, we have to hold them in tension and recognize that they were all, uh, they were all valid. They were all happening at the same time. And then I would say the last thing is that I hope that the, the research shows that, you know, these are individuals who are making decisions. You know, oftentimes we sort of, uh, we take our society at face value and we don't think about, um, I mean, for example, right, the, the idea of whiteness, that this was, that this didn't just emerge out of nowhere, that specific people decided to use this word, use this term for specific reasons. And in the same way, people have tried to, you know, use, use terms, use scripture to combat slavery. So again, emphasizing the individual decisions that led to sort of the current state of affairs that we are in now, that's really important to me, and not thinking that these were sort of unthinking decisions or uh, sort of this was just uh, what was thrust upon people. These were uh, individuals making decisions that led to uh, concepts like whiteness. What is the reaction when you talk about this concept of whiteness with your students? Uh, with my students, you know, I I bring it up in in a way that I think is accessible and makes sense to them, and mm-hmm. and they are very receptive. Um, you know, I haven't. I haven't actually gotten very much pushback from students, uh, but I think that's also because I, I pave the way, you know, and I also, I, I make it, it's about, it's about them and it's about modern society, but I also make it clear that it's, it's not about, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty, right? You know, I think that a lot of times people, you know, especially white people have this knee-jerk reaction of defensiveness when you start to talk about whiteness, um, and that's often because they don't, they I think implicitly they don't want to feel blamed for anything that happened in the past. And, you know, the, the way that I tell this history, it's not about blame. It's really about recognition, and it's about moving forward. And so I think when you put it in those terms and you lay out the, I mean, the facts, you know, you, you look at this history and you look at the primary documents, and I, I mean, I've been doing that research for 10 years, and I think that it just shows very clearly that there is this uh, there, you know, that there is this progression into justifying slavery through race. And, uh, you know, it's when I show people, like, this is the law that was created in 1697 that specifically made whiteness a prerequisite for voting, that that hadn't been the case before. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to argue with that. Um, what I think is more difficult is talking about this in a more, um, you know, pub, uh, in the public sphere where you don't, you don't get to know people as closely, and you can't you can't sort of walk them through the arguments with as much care. So, you know, I published a um, an op-ed in the Washington Post on this sort of on this topic, and you know, for the most part, I think people who are receptive to it were receptive to it, and then you get a lot of comments about you know uh, sort of <laughs> unthoughtful comments from people who who probably didn't even read the article that have the knee-jerk reaction of oh, this is race baiting. Um, and so, you know, I think that that, to me, has really shown me the difference between trying to talk about this, these, these really sensitive issues on a college campus and within the context of a classroom where I can really sort of um, get to know the students and also sort of walk them through these, these sensitive issues versus uh, sort of just putting, putting an article out there on the Internet where, you know, 
people don't know who I am, they don't know what my background is, I don't know who they are. Uh, that's, a, that's a more difficult conversation to have, frankly. Mm. And this whole idea of, um, you know, somebody saying to you that what you're engaging in is race baiting. I mean, when somebody says that to you, does it make your skin crawl? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 frankly, like, I, it does, but at the same time, I can't, I can't really do anything about it. I, I mean, I, my reaction is just like, huh, okay, well, that person's not open to actually thinking about anything that is, might challenge their sort of fundamental assumptions about the world. And um, I, at first it really bothered me. Now I kind of have to sh- just shrug my, shrug my shoulders and, you know, move on and find people who, um, especially in real life, who are, you know, more, more open to rethinking things and, uh, and really being open to understanding our history and our and because that really is the only way to understand our current situation. When you're talking about this book and um, the work that went into doing this book, one of the things that I understood is that in part of the research for the book, you went through a lot of letters that actually were written by um, missionaries. You went through things like uh, travel diaries. What was that like? Yes, you're right. I read through hundreds of pages of uh, missionary diaries. Uh, when I was when I was very fortunate, I would find a letter from an, uh, an enslaved or free black person. Yes, those are very, very rare documents for the period I'm looking at. Um, and but you know, when you spend so much time reading someone's diaries, even if it's you know a a missionary living in 1720, uh, you kind of get to you feel like you know them, um, and so, you know, I would begin to talk to, you know, people who I, you know, pe- my family, um, say, oh, oh, yeah, my missionary did this today, or my missionary did that today, um, and it's this, this fascinating way in which your, your mind becomes so, uh, so associated with the 6th, 17th, and 18th centuries that it's, uh, it's, it's almost, yeah, it's sort of this bizarre dual reality that you begin living. But it was, uh, I mean, it is a fascinating, it was fascinating to research. Sometimes it's really hard because many times, you know, a missionary is doing something that I, I have great disagreement with or, um, you know, I wish I could go back into that period and do something differently. But as a historian, you just have to read through the documents uh, you know, come to an understanding of what was going on, and then you know, write up your write up the narrative as, as you see it happening. Um, but you know, so it's it's difficult in re- some respects, but I think it's also really important to do this this hard work. You know, a lot of the the research I was doing, it's in these are handwritten documents in the 18th century. Many are not written in English, um, but if you know, if we just keep writing the same histories over the, you know, the same printed sources that are easily available, I feel like we we miss a lot of what's really going on in the in this early colonial period. And so, reading these kinds of sources are especially important to understand the lives of people that we don't normally see. Um, and in the case of missionaries, these are 
these were people who are living, you know, on slave plantations, writing about their conversations with enslaved people on a daily basis. And so they provide an opportunity, even it's even though it's many in many cases through the lens of a missionary. Uh, as a historian, we have methods that allow us to sort of use that source, but to better understand the lives of enslaved people, you know, living in the 18th century. And so. It's a lot of work and a lot of effort to sort of read through the sources, but in the end, I think they, it provides a new historical perspective, especially of, of the lives of people who we don't normally get to see. Um, and that is what's so rewarding about doing that research. Mm. What was the, um, I guess, political impact of the idea of a free black Christian population growing? Right. So uh, I, I sort of mentioned before how most slave owners did not want slaves to convert to Christianity because it was associated with political power and literacy. Um, but, you know, as I said before, also enslaved people recognized this, and, and a small number, you know, not a majority, but a small important number of them were able to gain baptism, and then some were able to win their freedom. And so there was this small population of free black Christians um, who emerged as uh, in the sort of late 17th century, and they uh, began to sort of demand the rights that other free Christians who were property owners also had, and that was, you know, rights for rights to vote in elections and hold political office. And so this was a really important shift uh, that started to happen in slave societies as free black populations emerged. And what I found is that the response from slave owners was basically to create a new barrier to political power, and that was um, this ideology of whiteness, right? So nobody talked about whiteness in 1650, but you know, 50 years later, in 1700, um, slave owners had, start to ins had started inserting this word white into their law books, um, and it was a response to the emergence of uh, free black populations. Um, and so that then became whiteness rather than religious difference, became the new justification for slavery and also a new way to uh, create a barrier for free people of African descent. Catherine Gerbner is talking with us on our program. I'm Bob Salter. More with Catherine as we continue. Another guest is going to join us as well. It's a busy program this morning. Eh? We try to have a good time as well. Speaking of a good time and also a show that will put a smile on your face, Anne Liguori is along talking golf after our top of the hour update here on The Fan. Hopefully by now you've downloaded that Radio.com app. And Liguori's Talking Golf is along after our 7 o'clock update. We're in discussion with Catherine Gerbner on our program. Catherine, you know, in your book, you talk about all these events. When you talk about the significance, I guess, historically, looking back at this point of the events, what do you point to? Well, I mean, the entire, our entire sort of system of... Uh, the way that we think about race stands out as absolutely a, an inheritance of, of this period of time. Um, uh, but more specifically, uh, the, the relationship between race and voter suppression, I think, is 
is very powerful. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about voter suppression in recent years as sort of the Voting Rights Act has been um, sort of slowly rolled back. And there's sort of this understanding that race and voter suppression have, have a connection. Uh, what I think that sort of that's the specific history of, um, of whiteness actually shows us, though, is that it was voter suppression that actually provided the incentive to create the idea of race. Um, so, right, like the, the reason that slave-owning lawmakers started to put the word white in the law books you know, was I mean, specifically to draw up a new law to say you have to be a white Christian person in order to vote, right, to create a new, a new barrier for free people of color um, and prevent them from voting. So I think that this, this perspective shows us that race and voter suppression, they're not just connected. Uh, voter suppression was actually the incentive to create race in many ways, uh, and specifically to create the idea of whiteness. So I think that really sheds a new light on the struggles of, about voter suppression today um, that I think are very significant. Most interesting book and discussion is so many different areas which we could cover in discussion, literally go on for hours. Uh, the book is entitled Christian Slavery, Conversion and Race in the Protestant Atlantic World. Catherine Gerbner, our guest in this portion of our program, as I mentioned in introducing her, she's Assistant Professor of History at the University of Minnesota and um, the author of this book. Is there another book in the works? You know, there is. Uh, right now, I'm, I've just started research on a project called Constructing Religion, Defining Crime, and it's about what we, you, you sort of mentioned that I, I write, a, I teach about the history of religion. The idea of what a religion is has a history, of course, and in many cases, black religious practices, especially under slavery, were actually not, they were not defined by uh, Europeans as religions. Uh, instead, they were often seen as sometimes superstitious, and they were often criminalized. And so the next project is really looking at the, the idea of what a religion is, um, how it has, how the boundaries have shifted over time, and how um, certain religious practices have been defined as criminal, um, and what that means for our understanding of religious freedom today. Well, certainly good luck with that effort. Sounds like a very rewarding and also intriguing project, too. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this information with us in our discussion. Certainly good luck with this book. Thank you so much. I'm Bob Solter, joined by Jules Morse. Uh, Jules is an interactive uh, copywriter and a brand strategist. Uh, she is joining us on our program to talk with us. Um, also, as a co-author of a book called Disco Fried, we'll talk a little bit about that in the course of our discussion, uh, too. A um, number of things we're going to get into in uh, this chat. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning, Jules. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. By background, I mentioned Disco Fried. Um, you're the co-author of this book. For people listening to us, can you tell us a little bit of what Disco Fried is all about? Okay. So um, this is a book that is about a couple of middle-aged women who uh, head, head to Montreal on a momcation searching for their mojos, only to realize in the end, that they had it all the time. Uh, that's it in a nutshell. So nobody needs to get the book because now I just told you the whole thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's 
there's a little more to it, but yeah. So, um, yeah, they, you know, they need to get some perspective and get out of town in order to do that. Momcation and Mojo. Okay. All right. That's, that's, <laughs> that sums it up right, right there. Right there. Um, there's some more information too, also at uh, Disco Fried. That's all is one word.com, the uh, website. Today in this discussion, we're talking a little bit about, um, the idea of the types of best friend that every girl has in her life. Um, can you explain to us how, kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. You know, it, there are different people that you are you gravitate toward for different reasons, um, and uh, you you can get something out of a variety of different types of relationships. Um, so you know when we think about the kinds of best friends out there or the kinds of uh, elements to those best friend personalities, we've got, you know, the ones, do, do you want me to tell you what, what types of um, best friends we think sure. of? Or, sure. Yeah. So we, you know, we imagine there are some that you're, that bring out your adventurous side. Um, there are some who you, the ones that you call when you're upset and crying in a crisis situation, um, you know, different, different, different people for different, um, what do you call it? Uh, strengths, you know, um, there are others who maybe offer you objective advice, right? They, they can sort of be real and honest with you. Um, there are some that maybe you fight with them, but if they're really your best friend, then you're gonna, you're gonna remain friends after the fight. It's not a real fight. It's just, you know, they're maybe telling you something you don't want to admit to or something along those lines. Now this, this have to be somebody that you've known all your life. Oh, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. As a matter of fact, um, the women in our book, they, they actually meet as grown-ups, which is, you know, I think that close friends a lot of times are people you've known for a very long time. Um, that's actually probably one of the interesting things about this pairing in the story is that um, they meet as, you know, older, later, not later in life because they're not old, but um, in their middle life years. So they've already developed as people into who they are and um, and that adds something to their relationship um, and it's interesting because they're very very close despite the fact they haven't known each other they've known each other for at the time that they go on their um, on their momcation I think they've known each other for an, uh, about five years or so but that's not that long in the grand scheme for best friends you know mm. think of best friends what about a best friend who's basically the complete opposite of you? Yes. Yeah, so actually, that's one of the things that is uh, especially interesting about this pairing is that they are, this is that exact type of best friend coupling, that um, they are, they, on the outside, do seem very much opposite, um, but then, you know, they share such similar values at their core that they, they're, that's their common denominator. That's how they, um, you know, relate to one another. And I think that that makes 
them a more interesting pairing, ultimately. You know, they're sort of oil and vinegar, but when you shake up oil and vinegar, what happens? You have this wonderful emulsion that's, you know, fantastic. So, but you, you know, they do separate from each other because they're so opposite. Mm. Sparking the kind of the creative juices? Sure. And yeah. And, and for, for the characters in our book, they, they create, when they're together, they create sort of this magnetic um, connection. People want, when you're, as you're reading, um, you see that they, they encounter a variety of different uh, personalities in, throughout the story. And these different people are attracted to them because of uh, that chemistry that they have. Mm. So that best friend who's there and is connecting on, for lack of a better term, almost on a soul level, is that... Right, like like a soul sister, okay. sure. Um, how can that really play out, I guess? Um, what's that so, connection really like, I guess is what I'm asking. Right, what's a soul sister? So, you know, I think that's kind of that person who... You, it's not your actual relative, you know, you weren't necessarily, you didn't grow up in the same house together and, and you don't have the same parents, but you connect on such a level that you just get each other. Um, you know, when you say uh, this person gets you or this, you know, it's just that experience of feeling like, okay, I don't even have to explain this whole story. I'm just going to say this little snippet and they're going to know what I'm talking about. Mm. Are there best friends who you also at times will fight with? Right. There absolutely are. But I, with, with that kind of relationship, in order to remain friends after the fight, uh, it takes a certain strength in the relationship, and it mm-hmm. takes a certain um, maturity as well. I think, you know, at different ages and stages, we are better equipped to handle that kind of thing. Um, if you're not mature enough to handle criticism, uh, you're going to have a hard time remaining friends with somebody that you're fighting with. And and those and when I say fighting, I think those are more just you know when you have a friend who's calling you out on something. If somebody's legitimately being mean, that's not somebody you're you know that you should probably be friends with in the first place. That would be a toxic relationship. But if they're not being mean, if they're just trying to be honest with you and set you straight when you need it, um, and you don't want to hear that, and you're fighting with them on it, you know, that those are that's actually a type of friend. <laughs> it's almost, you know, in a way it sounds like somebody who's almost like a sibling. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, That's the best way to think about it, right? Because your your siblings you fight with, but you always know that, okay, you know, however bad the fight gets, you're you're gonna eventually make up or you're gonna get past it or whatever. And it, it's that kind of thing. Mm. Okay. That person that you call and you're emotional for lack of a better term, you're crying. Okay. Very yeah. sad. Um and in many cases you may go on and on and on. Um and you pour your heart out to that person. How deep is that friendship? I mean, is that so solid that it's the sort of thing that just can't break apart? Because obviously a person is a great listener. Right. I mean, 
So, right, that's, a, that's is it about the friendship or is it about that person being good at that type of thing? Right. Um, I think it's a little of both. I think, what, you know, if you're going to call up some friend crying, you need to trust that. There has to be trust in that relationship that this person isn't going to, you know, suddenly start judging you as a, a weaker, lesser person because you can't handle whatever the thing is that you're crying about or, you know... It, you are you're vulnerable and you're exposing that vulnerability and you need there needs to be trust there in order to do that Mm. we're talking with jules morse on our program jules is co-author of the book disco fried disco fried.com the uh, website and she's um, sharing with us on our program um can you be best friends with someone whom you actually fight with all the time yeah, I mean, you know, back to back to the idea of if if the fight is really in your best interest, right? If this is somebody who's not being um, undermining and 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 mean, outrightly mean. If they're just honest and trying to, they have your own best your best interests at heart. Um, then yeah, you know, because eventually, hopefully, you'll come around to seeing that they. The fight was out of, you know, out of, it came from a, a good spot. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, malicious. I didn't ask you this earlier, but I've been thinking it the whole time. I assume some of the people listening to us may also be thinking. A couple of differences, if you would, Jules, between a best friend and a good friend. Mm, that's, that's an interesting one. Uh, so... We have, I think, a lot of good friends. Um, I mean, if you're lucky, you have a lot of good friends who are, you know, people in your life who you um, you can depend on in a pinch. You uh, you relate with you. You know, ha- are having similar experiences to, or you know, feel like you connect with them. A best friend is a is a kind of on a different level. It's someone who's in your inner circle. A lot of times it's people you went to school with. You've just had so many shared experiences that you can just pick up and and go where you left off. Very interesting discussion with Jules Morse on our program. Jules is the co-author of Disco Fried, companion website at discofried, that's all that's one word, dot com. And she's shared an awful lot with us talking about the different types of best friends that every girl has in her life. Thank you very much for being kind with your time and sharing this with us. I hope our listeners have found this discussion interesting, too. Thank you, Bob. Well, that'll do it for our show this week. I'm Bob Solter. We'll see you at 6 next Sunday morning. And Ligori's talking Golf after our top-of-the-hour update this morning here on The Fan. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.